If you'll take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 26. By my count, we have five chapters left in Samuel, which makes me sad. But there's a second Samuel. (laughs) But we'll probably wait on that one for a while. 1 Samuel 26. For those of us who have grown up in the South, which is all fortunate folks, we are very familiar with the sight of kudzu, right? The climbing, coiling, trailing, invasive vines that are often seen on roadsides or under power lines or in depressed, abandoned areas, sometimes unfortunate folks uh, have experienced this more. Everyone knows that kudzu is a menace and that it's hard to get rid of. What you may not know as well is that the only way to kill it is to completely destroy not all the root system, but the root crown is what it's called. It can be very difficult because the crown is under the ground and can actually produce seeds that are very sturdy. Some will remain viable for, for years. So you may kill the root for a couple years and then the seed comes up later. So it's a really nasty, uh, it's a nasty plant to try to, to try to get rid of. But everyone also knows that kudzu can spread very fast. But I bet you don't know how fast. According to the U.S. government, which knows everything, they say that left unchecked, the plant can cover 1,500 acres in a year. Wow. It must be kept in constant check, even once you've gotten rid of it, to make sure that it is completely dead. On my running route, I run past this large area that's infected by, by kudzu. And you can see how the, the, plant, the plant climbs up the telephone poles. It even reaches up into the trees. Some are probably 80 feet high. And it's, it's, killing, you know, it's killing things and slowly strangling the other plants just because they can't, they can't get sunlight. Well, on either side of this area of kudzu, there are two houses. On one side, there's a beautiful house that's well-maintained and well-manicured. It has gardens. It has nice flower beds and a little toy deer. I don't know why they do that, but there's a little toy deer out there. And it's got a carefully groomed, fine fine gravel driveway. But you can see where the kudzu comes up to the edge of the property, and it stops, right? Clearly, the owner has worked very hard to, to keep it cut back. But on the other side of the kudzu power line kind of area. There's another house. It's also a pretty nice house. Uh, it's not quite as well maintained. This is, this is pretty accurate, I think. Um, but it's different from the first house because the kudzu is being more successful. It is creeping in. It's, it's going up the trees that are on the edge of the property in this guy's yard. But I noticed most, most significantly that it was left to grow and it's growing up the back of this guy's carport. It's got like the three-walled carport. It's growing up the back. It's, it's completely covered the back wall and it's creeping around the sides. It's creeping up over the roof. And very soon, if this guy doesn't do something, he's going to lose his carport to kudzu. Both men have the same problem, right? Kudzu. And the roots run deep 
And they're resilient. And day after day, this kudzu is slowly, repeatedly trying to overtake their properties. But one man has been diligent. He has day after day been pruning. I was reading that my hometown of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, pioneered the technique of turning goats loose on kudzu, which apparently can work in some places. You just got to keep them there because it doesn't kill it. Um, don't know why I included that. Or maybe this guy was using kudzu, right? And, and he, the other man is growing weary or perhaps lazy. I don't know. I'm not, I won't judge him for that. But clearly he has done something to maintain his property, but he's getting behind. He's the constant maintenance, the weekly cutting back has, has grown wearying, and now the kudzu is starting to win. Sin is like kudzu. If you don't do something about it, if you don't take radical action, it's going to destroy you and overtake you. The book of Samuel has been a study of contrasts, most notably between Saul and David. Both Saul and David we've seen are flawed men, right? We can't elevate David too high on a pedestal. We've kicked that pedestal out. Both have a sin problem, a sin problem that is rooted in their heart. But only one of them has the Spirit of the Lord. Remember, Saul was left by the Spirit of the Lord. And we have been watching as this kudzu-like sin is trying to overtake them. And we've seen them both fail in dramatic ways, but there has been a difference. David, who is filled with the Spirit, sins, but he repents. Which means that he's growing. That's a key truth for tonight. He's growing. Saul, on the other hand, who has been abandoned by the Lord, and his sin is getting worse. You have to understand Saul and to understand the book of Samuel, you really have to understand that we're watching a progression of sin in Saul. It only gets worse and worse. That brings us to our main idea from this text this evening. Tonight, we're going to see the difference that real faith makes. Faith has sin-killing power, power that can fight sin. Faith repents, faith grows, faith gives mercy, and we'll see faith act and obey because true faith is totally assured that God has promised things to come tomorrow. He is totally assured of certainties that God has promised will come tomorrow. So let's read this chapter together. Chapter 26, starting in verse 1. See if this sounds familiar. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east side of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. But he saw that David, when he saw that Saul had come after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was laying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zariah, Who will go down with me to the, into the camp to Saul? 
And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went into the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with the spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. Verse 9, But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come in to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Hopefully it's not falling upon you right now. Okay, back to verse 13. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you to call, who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that is at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is man, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord. Saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will do you no more, I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David, You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. This is the inspired word of God given to us for our instruction. Let's pray. Father, we feel very far away from this passage and this setting and these events. So would you open our eyes to see and understand your word and what is true 
Would you help us now as we take this task together? So, Father, I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Let only your word remain. Let it be expounded clearly and help us to understand it so that it would bear fruit in our lives as we apply it. We ask this in your name. Amen. Hopefully this passage sounded familiar to you. If you have read uh, Samuel 24, a few which we covered a few weeks back, it should sound very familiar to you. So we are in another here-we-go-again type of situation. We've been watching Saul spiral towards destruction, and, and we've reflected on this lesson several different times, so much so that when I first read it, I was like, <laughs> uh, I, I, was, I was almost hesitant to bring this particular part up again. However, I think we should explore it yet again, and here's why. The passage repeats it, so it must be important. It's an emphasis. The, if you've been following along, it sounds familiar. It's almost an exact replica of chapter 24. So much so that there are many liberal readers, some who are within five miles of our church. Some pastors will treat it like this. You've got to understand, I'm not just talking about people way out there. Some, some people will treat it like this. They will say, oh, this must be a mistake. Chapter 24 and chapter 26 must have been written by two different people referring to the same event and they just like got their geography mixed up and they got the camp and the cave mixed up and they got the sleeping, right? They, they, they must have got some of this mixed up. I mean, it's, there's some discrepancies, but that makes sense because humans are sinful and humans make errors, right? The Bible has errors. Lots of folks say this. Lots of mainline churches say this. But once again, we, I mean, we've got to note the similarities. Once again, Saul has someone say to him, hey, we know where David is. Let's go get him. Once again, Saul takes 3,000 men. Once again, David sees Saul, creeps down in, and instead of taking his life, takes some symbolic possession. Once again, David confronts Saul. And once again, Saul is very sorry. But I think that these similarities actually reveal to us why we should pay such careful attention, right? We've been watching Saul slide into destruction, and we're watching David struggle to grow into the king, the godly king that God's calling him to be. And so I think that this passage actually really helps us answer the question, how can you tell if you're growing? How can you tell if you're making progress? How can you tell if you are growing in sanctification? How can you tell if you're in the will of God? How can you tell if you are a believer? You see, here's the answer. Believers grow. Unbelievers get worse. Believers grow. Unbelievers get worse. David is growing, Saul is getting worse. He's self-destructing. So let's start with what we can learn from Saul. Here's our big lesson from Saul, again, and we've seen it before, but we're seeing it even more pronounced now. Unchecked sin only gets worse. Okay, I'm not just talking about Saul's sin, I'm talking about all sin. Unchecked sin will only get worse. Just like back in chapter 24, someone else brought the temptation to Saul, right? the information about where David was, and they tempted him, hey, let's go kill him, right? And Saul, he couldn't resist, 
right? He, he, he just, it was too much of a temptation for him. You would think, right, you've got to remember the context. You would think that he had just learned, David had just showed him mercy two chapters ago in almost the same event. You would think that he had learned, but clearly he didn't. And remember, Saul apologized. He said that he was sorry, but nothing had changed. It's a reminder to us, you can say all the right things. You can even make some behavioral modifications. But if your heart does not change, you're just going to fall back into the same old sin. All it takes is the right kind of temptation. This is why so many men cannot get untangled from their pornography. They may feel guilty about it and try to stop. They may even put filters on their computer. But if their heart doesn't change, it will eventually find their way back to their sin. And the same is true for all other types of sin. That is the nature of the sinful appetite. There is never enough. You always want more. It always wants more. The man in sin, and again, guys, don't think just big sin, right? The big, bad, terrible people like not us. But think about the habits that we struggle with, the sin habits that you and I struggle with. That is the nature of sin. The man that is in habitual sin, the man with the hardened heart, will always be ready to commit more evil. Kudzu is always ready to grow a little more. The depraved nature will constantly work to draw itself back into self-destroying sin. On Sunday nights, we've been talking about how to grow in our thinking and to think in ways that please God. And we're seeing this pattern again and again and again, right? We don't accidentally become righteous. You accidentally become more sinful, right? That's the default. The default is not to be more godly. The default is ungodliness, The depraved nature will constantly work to draw itself back into more self-destroying sin. This is the exact same dynamic that James spoke of in James chapter 1. Do you remember this passage where he says, Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, do you remember, gives birth to sin. And when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Right? Did you hear the progression there? It begins with temptation, which we all experience constantly. It begins with temptation, but that temptation latches on to something, some sort of sinful desire. And then that desire gets pregnant, that's weird, and gives birth to sin. And that sin, if it is not checked, if it is not stopped, if it is not slowed down, if, it, if you do not take a machete to that sin, it will kill you. That's what James says. It will lead to death. Every single sin is on the highway to hell. It's always in that direction. And that is Satan's purpose with us in every temptation and every sin, to destroy us. Saul's behavior shows how irrational temptation can be. Do you see that? We're seeing the danger of this, but we're also seeing how irrational this is. It's easy for us to look and be like, Saul, why did you do that, right? You do this with Israel all the time. Why did they do that? Why did they forget again? Yet, if we look at our own lives, do we not do the same thing, right? Sin is irrational, How easily can we forget what we have already learned from past experience? 
Or how easily can we forget what we've learned in God's law? Saul did not just learn this lesson. He did not just learn that God, or did not Saul just learn that God is with David and that David will be king and that there's nothing that he can do to stop it? Yet here he is again trying to kill David. I mean, Saul even admitted, I know you're going to be king, but here he is again trying to kill David. Sin makes us crazy. It makes us dumb. It makes us irrational. It makes us act irrational. I mean, have you ever had a time that you sinned and were satisfied? Have you, have you not learned, have we not learned that our sin will not satisfy us? Have we not before tasted the bitterness that comes with sin? Do you not know the information that God's wrath will rightly come upon sin? Can you name even one time in your life that sin made your life better in the long run? Then why do we do it? Oh, how much we need a Redeemer. Not just once, but again and again and again. We need a Redeemer. He completes it once for all, but we stand in constant need of Him. Brothers and sisters, let us take every precious moment that we have of spiritual sanity. This is why reading the Bible is so important. These moments of spiritual sanity and consider now the dangers of our sinful desires. I regularly, when I've, developed, I've tried to develop the habit over the years that when I read stories of pastors falling into adultery or, or people running away with, with uh, someone outside of marriage, I try to stop and I try to imagine what would happen in my life if I did that. I try to picture the carnage because it is a deterrent. It reminds me of the danger of sin. And I think that it, gets, it, it undoes a little bit of Satan's tempting power. So we have to picture what will sin do to us. There's so many ways we could take that, but we, we got, let's move on to David. David gives us a different picture. Saul is spiraling and it's getting worse. But look at David's growth in grace. If you want to put a word by David's, the way specifically we're seeing him grow, it would be imaginative faith. We're going to explore that anger, his imaginative faith. Instead of the downward spiral of Saul, we're seeing David grow. Saul is self-destructing and David is growing. Sure, David's growth is irregular, right? And it's full of fits and starts. We've seen that. That's how spiritual growth is. That's how your spiritual growth will likely be. It will be messy, it will be bumpy, and it will be incredibly, frustratingly slow. No Christian grows as fast as he wants. That's certainly been my experience. However, we can't use that as an excuse not to grow. Let me remind you what D.L. Moody said. I've quoted him negatively before. Let me quote him positively now. He says, The world has not yet seen what God can do with a man fully surrendered to him. That is true. That is true. How can we tell that David was growing? Well, just as Saul faced the same temptation in 26 he did in 24, David faced the same temptation. Right? He had another chance to take his life into his own hands, to bring vengeance on his enemy. We've talked about that a lot in the past, so I'll leave that to rest. But David had another chance to take Saul out and to take the king, the kingdom, the throne by force. I mean, do you remember what happened in the last couple of chapters? Let's just remember, okay? Chapter 24, David showed Saul mercy. 
right? He's in the cave, had a chance to kill him. He cut off a piece of his robe, showed him mercy. Remember? Then what happened in chapter 25? Well, David, Mr. Mercy, is trying to kill a whole family, a whole household. Not, you know, not, not so good. He, he showed mercy in 24, forgot about mercy in 25. Is this not your life, right? Do you not see this in your own life? Obedient one day and struggling the next. Prone to wander, Lord, I fear it. Prone to leave the God I love. But, so David showed mercy 24, forgot about it in 25. God helped him. 26, what's he going to do? Is he going to show mercy again? Well, he's back to mercy. Take note, look down at verse 10 especially. David exercises here what we'll call imaginative faith. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or, this, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. You see what's happening? So David is being faced with the same temptation to kill him. His, his comrade is, is, is bringing this to him. But now we can tell his faith has grown since 25 and since 24. It's grown in the soil of that sensitive conscience. Remember we talked about in 25? Not only has David seen God deliver him from Saul in 24, but he's also seen God's judgment on Nabal in, verse 20, in chapter 25. So when David is faced with yet another temptation, what happens? His faith is stronger. He's stronger. He is now able to exercise imaginative faith. David doesn't, he doesn't know what God's going to do, right? He doesn't know how God is going to bring help and how God is going to bring relief. So what does he do? He starts dreaming up some ways that God could pull it off. Did you see that? Verse 10. Maybe God will strike him like Nabal, right? Or maybe he'll just die like Eli. Or maybe he'll die in battle like Hophni and Phinehas. Either way, it didn't matter to David. David knew God would take care of it. David's concern was what? Obedience. He's dreaming up ways that God could solve this problem, but he left it to God and he focused on, I am going to obey. And that's what imaginative faith does. It has this new and growing, this exciting appreciation of the sovereignty of God. And all the power that God has at his disposal to bring about his promises in your particular situation. He was dreaming. I mean, do you see what he was doing? He was, he was practicing that, that same restraint that he practiced back at Wild Goat Rocks. Sounds like a bar, doesn't it? That's where David was in chapter 24. Wild, wild Goat Rocks. Maybe minor league baseball team. Either way, now David has stronger faith. He has stronger faith. He is newly convinced in a fresh and new way that God could handle his problems. Did David know that in chapter 24? Yeah, like he wrote 50 psalms about it. But he knew it in a new way. Do you see? There are things that we know about God that we need to know and learn about God. Do you understand what I'm saying? David was learning it in new ways. He was newly convinced that God could handle his problems. He had a new confidence that God could be trusted to handle fools like Nabal or wicked oppressors like Saul. But notice... Sometimes God takes care of business fast. How long did Nabal have to, how long did they have to wait before Nabal died? Anybody remember? Ten days. How long did he have to wait before Saul died? A long time. Same God, different timetables, no explanation given to David. 
Have we not seen this again and again? God is probably not going to give you explanations for the timetables and the plans that he's doing in your life outside of his word because his word is enough. And David was convinced, this is enough for me. I'm just going to obey God and I'm going to focus on him. Sometimes God may go slow. Sometimes he may go fast. Doesn't matter. God will work. God can be trusted to do what David could not do. David had imaginative faith that had seen God work in the past. So he was armed with these promises of God. And so he could dream up reasonable ways about how God could work in the future. Should we not learn to do the same? And do we not have so many more examples of God's power than David did? We have the whole Bible, right? We have more of redemptive history. I mean, should we not let our imaginative faith run wild at all the possibilities that are open to a completely sovereign, good, and loving God? Do you know how many different ways God could heal Emma? You can't count that high. There are no limits to his power. None. Our view is not big enough because we're so focused on the moment. Do you know how many different ways God could change your marriage? Do you know how many different ways God could be working in your suffering right now? Do you know how many different ways God has a plan for your life in old age? He does. You don't, but he does. You can't count that high. You see, growing faith takes the truths of God's sufficiency and of God's adequacy and of God's goodness, and then it lets imagination run wild. That will help keep you from sin. Do you see what I'm saying? But we've got to notice here that the emphasis is not that David, the emphasis is that David knew that God could work. He didn't know how he would work. It's very important. David was convinced that God would work according to his wisdom, and he left God to it, right? So often we struggle. We <laughs> put it like this. David, David did not restrict God to work within David's framework, right? David had how many ideas that God could work? Three, right? God's not like, hmm, A, B, or C, right? We can't, we can't dream up a couple options and then be frustrated that God doesn't pick our, pick our plan, right? So often our faith is weak because we pray for something and then we're like, God didn't give it to me. He must not love me. When we're failing to see, we're failing to dream up that his love may actually be beyond your comprehension. Do you see? Same thing is true with the problem of evil. We, just because you can't understand him, it doesn't mean that it's not true and it doesn't mean that he's not in control. The point is not that you imagine the way that God will deliver you, but that your view of God is big enough not to insult him, to leave room that he can. And the chances are you probably won't be able to predict the deliverance, right? Do you think uh, there are any Israelites who predicted God parting the Red Sea? I'm sure there was some schmuck Israelite probably a guy who's like, oh yeah, I knew he was going to do it, right? I knew it was going to happen. I just watched. Like, I called it. I called it, man. I called it, right? Who would have predicted that I was going to part a, part a body of water and march him through on dry ground? You can't guess what he will do, but don't limit your view of God to your mind. 
God is big and huge. What's important is that we have enough faith to obey. God marched them straight into the Red Sea. <laughs> wow, this got to have been frustrating, right? Got to have been frustrating. Brothers and sisters, God's ways will frequently baffle us. But he will always reveal enough for us to know how to obey him in the midst of our problem. That's so important. Don't focus your effort on figuring out what God's doing. Focus your effort on doing what God has told you to do. And your life will go much better. We need imaginative faith. I mean, do, you, do you want to know how you're growing? Well, think about David. He faced the same temptation. And what did he do? He grew. He responded differently. That's how you can tell if you're growing. When you face the same temptation, do you respond differently? Are you developing a new pattern of response? That's the key. When Saul faced the same temptation, he sinned again. When David faced the same temptation, right? Remember chapter 25, he sinned, but he repented. So in chapter 26, he obeyed and he grew. Verse 23 in this passage makes it clear that David was convinced God rewards obedience. And so he was focused on obeying no matter what it cost. His faith had grew. And that would actually give David new faith to obey again in the future. That's what happens. The more that we obey God in our difficulties, the more equipped we'll be in the next difficulty to obey. Faith grows. Faith begats faith and sin begats sin. Do you see how this works? Believers change. They grow. Unbelievers hardened. That's the surest way to tell if you're a believer. Can you see a pattern of change in your life? I'm not primarily concerned on if you prayed the prayer or if you believe that Jesus was a good guy who did some cool things and died on a cross and rose for your sins. That's not enough. Are you changing? That's how you tell if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Can you see a pattern of change in your life? Here's one of the questions I like to ask. And this is important because no matter where you are in your walk with the Lord, this gets to the, to the root of it. Do you look more like Jesus this year than you did last year? If we, if we try to measure growth in days and weeks, that, that doesn't leave room for the crazy ups and downs. Even the one-year question doesn't. Do you look more like Jesus this year than you did five years ago? Some of us have been walking with God for a long time, and that makes us very nervous, that question. Do you look more like Jesus now than you did last year? Believers grow, but sinners harden their hearts and die. I wish we had time. David makes a complaint in verse 19 about how he's being forced to have no share in the heritage of the Lord and to go serve other gods. Um, There's some interesting things to explore there, but, but um, I don't think I have time to cover that tonight. So I want to address one other issue that I think can be helpful and very practical, and that is how do we respond to repeat offenders? Okay? Um, we noted that chapter 26 is almost a carbon copy of chapter 24. And we've considered a few lessons from that. But I think we should also consider what can we learn from this text in how we respond to repeat offenders. Remember, Saul has just chased David again, right? 
He confessed, I'm sorry I chased you and tried to kill you, chapter 24. Here he is in 26, sorry I'm chasing you, trying to kill you, right? Has anyone ever apologized to you for trying to murder you, right? David had it hard, and it was happening again and again. And I think that David's response helps us understand this. In chapter 25, we discussed how Abigail responded to her foolish husband, Nabal, a repeat fool, right? An abuser. We talked about that. You can go listen to that if you missed it. And in chapter 26, we can see how David responded to Saul, a repeat oppressor. Do you see? Well, some of us find us, some of us find ourselves or may in the future find ourselves in situations where we're dealing with verbal, emotional, or even physical abuse. Some of us have experienced that. Some of us may experience that in the future. But all of us know what it's like to deal with sinners who say they're sorry and keep on sinning. So what do we do when that happens? That's what Saul has done, right? He's the guy who says, hey, I'm sorry, and then turn around and does the same thing. What do you do when that happens? What do you, I mean, can we we just be honest? Like that happens in marriage, that happens in parent-child relationships, that happens in close friendships. We struggle with that. What do we do when someone sins against you, says I'm sorry, and then turn around and does it again? Especially when it's big and dramatic like murder or like being married to a fool in Abigail's case. How do we respond? How do we respond when people sin against us in terrible, sometimes horrifically destructive ways? Saul once again apologizes. He once again says the pious stuff. He says the right things and does all that apology stuff, right? How do we respond in those cases? Well, I've, I think we've got time for three lessons on how to respond to repeat offenders. Now, these are not the only things. These are building on things I've said in the past, right? We talked about we still confront sin, things like that. But since we're short on time, let's shut down these three things. When you are dealing with repeat offenders, the first thing to remember is to respond to sinners remembering that you too are a sinner. Respond to repeat sinners, remembering that you too are a sinner. This is amazing to me. Look down at verse 19. David says in his confrontation to Saul, If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. I read that several times and didn't understand what was going on. And then I realized David is saying, this might be my fault. David is, he's exercising imaginative faith, but that imaginative faith also includes, hey, I'm a sinner. David wonders, perhaps I've sinned. I might have contributed something to this. I may, God may be disciplining me. Even though what Saul is doing is wrong, David thinks perhaps God is disciplining me. Now, I think that the text makes it clear that that is not the case. I don't think that's what's going on here. But the point is to note that David considered it. David was willing to consider. He did not view Saul as the only sinner in the problem. That's often our problem, right? She's the only one. She's, the, she's got the problem. <laughs> Counseling all the time. Never mind. All right? So hard to see our own sin. It's so easy to see other people's sin. David was willing to consider. Saul did terrible things, and David was willing to say, I'm a sinner too. 
Saul was in a sense infinitely worse than David, yet David was growing more and more aware that he was a sinner. And so he approached Saul as a fellow sinner. Brothers and sisters, this is so important for us. Even when people commit horrific, inexcusable, life-altering sins against us, we must never forget that we too were once like them. The same kudzu that grows in their yard grows in your yard. The same root of sin dwells in our flesh. We struggle with that same sinful flesh just as much as our offenders do. We all have a kudzu problem. And it won't go away completely until God gives us new bodies. We still struggle with sin. And if you act like that you don't have sin, even if the other person's sin is way bigger, then you're putting yourself in a position of self-righteousness and you're going to make the situation worse. Respond to sinners remembering that you too are a sinner. Point number two, never treat your offender as he or she deserves. Never treat them as they deserve. Saul deserved to die. David knew it, but he also knew that he didn't have the right to do it. He knew that was God's prerogative. And as we have seen time and time again, God's call for his people is to leave room for God's wrath. When we see sin, we get angry. Especially when it's sin that hurts us, right? God has given us that, that is a gift, that we see sin and are righteously angry, right? And as much as that has been preserved by God's grace, that is a good thing. When we see sin, we should be angry at the sin. But we are never given permission to turn around and sinfully act upon our anger. God has not given us the task of punishing evil, He hasn't. We are not to distribute justice. What do we distribute? Mercy. Doesn't mean that we don't love justice. It just means that we aren't the ones that distribute it. We distribute mercy. That's why it is so important to see point number one, to approach sinners as a sinner. Because when we do that, we have an attitude of humility. We're coming and saying, hey, look, we both need grace. We both are in need of grace. And when you realize that you need grace, not only are you going to have compassion and sympathy for the other person struggling with sin who needs grace, but you'll actually be able to give it to them. You got a lot and you can give some away because you found that fountain and you're not going to run out. We'll be eager to give it away. No matter how bad the sin is, no matter how much he has abused you, no matter how much she has torn you down, here's the rule all the time. We are never to treat anyone as their sins deserve. Because God has decidedly not treated us as our sins deserve. And this sets us up for this last point here on how to respond to sinners. We are called to forgiveness. To forgiveness. Now we don't really know it from the text. I, I don't know specifically if David like officially forgave Saul, but I think that it's clear from his expression of mercy, the mercy that he showed, that he was certainly ready to forgive. Jesus makes it clear for us in Matthew 18 how we are to respond to repeat offenders. Do you remember? 
Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how many times, how, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? That's a lot. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 says that we are to forgive as much as we have been forgiven. That is the measure. In other words, there is no sin, no amount of sin, no amount of repeat sin for which we are to withhold forgiveness. Forgiven people can never rightfully withhold forgiveness. But practically, what does that look like? Especially with repeat offenders. Remember, we've seen a pattern. David and Saul are both facing repeat temptations and David or Saul keeps on sinning. And by the way, that's what abusers and oppressors do. They, they are in a well-established pattern of oppression. But notice how David responded to uh, Saul's false repentance with skepticism. You see that? He, Saul's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And David's like, okay, send a guy to come get the spear. Don't you come, right? They, they were not, not going to hug. This was, ser- this was serious. There had been a lot of history. There's a well-established pattern. David still offered his forgiveness, but he did not grab his harp and move back in with Saul. I believe the Bible calls us, and we can't explore this in detail tonight, to two different levels of forgiveness. Two different types of forgiveness. One is attitudinal forgiveness. It's heart forgiveness. Right? It's when you, you are in your heart immediately ready to, to offer forgiveness. That means no bitterness. But then the other type of forgiveness is what may be called transactional forgiveness. We are always, in every circumstance, called to attitudinal forgiveness. That is to forgive in our heart, to not treat them as their sins deserve. But that is different than transactional forgiveness, which is dependent on the guilty party actually repenting. And the more serious the sin, the more habituated it is, the more continual, the longer the pattern the more time it will take to tell if the sinner has actually repented. Only then can the relationship be fully restored. Sin does real damage. And I believe that those who are sinned against can give a person a reasonable amount of time to tell if the other sinner has repented. Still being humble, right? You have to do that because I've seen this sometimes where, where a person may actually miss out that God is changing the other person. They're so skeptical and they're, they're so hurt and they're so wounded, they're completely missing out that God is changing the other person. You don't want to do that because all of a sudden you're the Saul. You're the one sliding into sin. So you're still being humble and you're still offering mercy, Doing, you're treating them like they don't deserve, but that doesn't mean you move back in with the harp. All the while, being ready, every single moment of every day, no matter how long it takes, this may be decades, ready to offer full, complete, transacted forgiveness. Sinners sin. And sinners sin against other sinners. But Christians repent and they forgive. Of course, as we reflect on this chapter of Scripture tonight, we see, I hope, both we see ourselves in both David and Saul. Hopefully you don't read this and you're like, ha, I'm like Saul, or David, right? Saul, crazy guy. Hopefully, hopefully we see ourselves in both of them. 
Even for those who, those of us who are in Christ and are growing, we are constantly reminded that like Saul, we engage in the same old destructive habits of sin. Not, not totally, but there are some habits of sin that you are still struggling with that you were struggling with 50 years ago when you first came to Christ. I mean, how's that pride issue coming? What about that gossip situation? We struggle. Like dogs, we keep running back to our vomit, even though we should know better. But we're also like David. Especially if you're a believer, we grow slowly. And if we're growing slowly, do we not need lavish supplies of grace as we grow? Who among us in this room is quick to show mercy and to offer forgiveness for those who repeatedly sin against us? Do we not all need to grow in these areas? Are we not, do we not often struggle like David did back in chapter 25 with Nabal? To have imaginative faith instead choosing to rush in and try to kill everybody, right? So whether you see more of yourself in David or Saul, they both need a savior. Both need a redeemer. Both need to be rescued and both need to be changed. And so we must remember that David himself is pointing us ahead to a greater and truly righteous king. A king that trusted and obeyed God perfectly, who suffered patiently, and who suffered at the hands of repeat sinners. He suffered, he suffered showing mercy, and that mercy was for who? His enemies. He was suffering for his enemies. Christ himself did not come with the sword. The picture of, the, the picture of, of Saul's spear is prominent in this passage. Christ himself did not come with a sword or with a spear. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christ had every right to come to earth and exercise his right to thrust sinners through with the spear, just like David's buddy offered. But instead he came as a savior, as a servant. Judgment will come later, but Christ came to save. Brothers and sisters, we must make no mistake. Judgment will come. Saul lived by the sword, and guess what? In a few chapters, he will die by the sword. And though he died by his own sword, which was suicide, complete self-destruction, he would die rejected and judged by the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we must all run to Jesus. We must all place our faith in him and leave it there. We must reckon that with all the remaining dark depravities in our heart, we must run to Jesus crying, you must save me or I have no hope at all. And there you will find mercy. And for those who find mercy, and I mean truly find mercy, you'll be stunned by it. And then you'll be eager, you'll be eager to give it away, even to repeat offenders. Let's pray. Father, would you please help us to marvel at your mercy and your grace. Help us in our complicated relationships when we have been hurt and sinned against. Help us to, to love and serve like Jesus did. Not foolishly, but with mercy and shrewdness. And Father, we ask that you would help us display to the world, like David did, what the true king is really like. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.